Okay, okay, we're going to get to the podcast in just one minute. But imagine I gave you the opportunity to invest in Microsoft, in Apple, in Tesla at its infancy. And now you made all this profit and it would be unbelievable. You'd be so thankful and so grateful. I believe that that day is today for Torch. Because for the next 36 hours, every donation you contribute at givetorch.net is doubled by our generous matchers, and you can come in at the ground floor. Yes, last year, over 1 million people enjoyed our podcasts. You as well, I hope. And I believe we can get to 10 million this year, but we need your help. It's only one day a year that we ask. We need your contribution. We need your partnership. We love your partnership and your friendship. Please contribute at givetorch.net, givetorch.net. Every dollar is matched. I apologize for taking your time. Thank you so much in advance for your support. Enjoy this episode. You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. All right, my dear friends, welcome back. Welcome back to the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. It is so awesome to be here on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Last week, we learned the Talmud in Tractate Yoma uh, 86a that talks about the different virtues of repentance. And it's very important to take a moment and to discuss repentance on a much deeper level. The Talmud said a very amazing thing. It says, brings a verse, it says, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Gedola teshuva shemagasat Tshuva is so great, repentance is so great, because it reaches the heavenly throne of the Almighty. It reaches the heavenly throne of the Almighty. Shenemar, because it says in the verse in Hosea, Shuva Yisrael ad Hashem alokecha. Return, O Israel, till Hashem your God. What's till Hashem? Till Hashem's throne. Where is Hashem? Hashem is sitting on his throne. Obviously, Hashem doesn't sit on a chair. Hashem doesn't have a physical form. But that concept for us to understand, to put it into a realistic vision in our mind that Hashem is sitting on a throne, so to speak. And our teshuva reaches the throne of Hashem. You think it's just in the outlying areas of the world, of planet Earth, that that's where our teshuva sits. No, no, no. It gets all the way to the throne of Hashem. So I want to share with you now a midrash, an unbelievable midrash, to add to this piece of Talmud. It says, Our sages of blessed memory said, When Moshe went to the first firmament, now let's go back in the history and talk about this. We know that when the Jewish people were at Mount Sinai, there was only one person who was allowed to go up the mountain, and that was Moses. Moses, you come up the mountain, and Moses ascended to the heavens after God's revelation of the Ten Commandments. Then Moshe goes up into the heavens to receive the physical tablets from heaven. He was there for 40 days. What happened when he got up there? What happened when he was in the heavens? It says the following. When he arrived to the first firmament, he found groups of angels. They opened up in front of him a Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll. And they read the first day of creation. And then they concluded. 
v'yitchilu l'saper b'shivcha shel Torah, and they they started praising the greatness of the Torah. All right. So what happened here? What happened was that Moshe goes up to the heavens. He gets to the first firmament. They take out a Torah. They start reading from the first day of of creation. We're talking about the angels there, and then they start praising the Torah. Oh, what an incredible Torah this is! Moshe gets to the second firmament. He found a second group of higher-ranking angels. And they're reading the second day of creation. And then they concluded. And they started praising the Torah and the Jewish people. He gets up to the third. He found higher-ranking angels. They're reading the third day of creation. And then they concluded and they started praising the praise of Jerusalem. The Midrash continues. He went to the fourth firmament. Which is even higher ranking angels. And they were reading the fourth day of creation. And they concluded and they started praising Shibcha Shal Mashiach, the praise of Mashiach. And then he went up to the fifth, and he found Machanos, Machanos, which is again, even higher ranking angels. They're reading the fifth day of creation, and when they concluded, they started praising Itzbona Shal Gehenim, the incredible gift of Gehenim. Just as a side note, people are like, look at me, what? The gift of Gehenim? Gehenim is purgatory. People are going to burn to a crisp. So we have to understand that it's not the same as in other religions. Other religions say whatever they want to say to scare the heck out of you. In Judaism, that's not true. It's imagine you get very, very, very dirty. You're wearing your suit. You're about to go to a wedding or you know your children wear their, they're wearing their new shoes and they go into a pile of mud and it's filthy, disgusting mud everywhere. You going to let your kids walk into the house like that? I don't think so. You're going to pull out your hose and you start hosing down those sneakers, those shoes. And you can say, I'm sorry, you're not coming to my house with dirty shoes. Our sins are filth. We can't walk into God's home with filth. So what do we got to do? We got to clean it off. We get into that purgatory where it gets steamed off. God cleans off all of that filth, that stench. And now we can go to the heavens. It's not a destination like other religions make it sound. For the really, really, really evil, for them, it's eternal. But that's not for the ordinary people. The ordinary people, it's a temporary state up to, our sages tell us, 11 months. For a righteous, 12 months. For a non-righteous. That's why we say Kaddish for 11 months after someone passes away. We say Kaddish for 11 months because that's the extent of time that they would be in purgatory if they were a righteous person, and we assume that all people are righteous. So they have just a little cleanup. That extra month is if they're even filthier. Okay, so they were praising Gehenim, this purgatory. They got to the, Moshe got to the sixth firmament, he found their higher-ranking angels, and they're reading the sixth day of creation. And when they concluded, they started praising Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. And then, and they were asking 
the Almighty, and they were asking Hashem, give the Jewish people that you just revealed the Torah to, give them a portion in the world, to, in, 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 in the Garden of Eden. Moshe gets to the highest firmament, to the seventh heaven. All of the highest ranking angels, the angels of kindness, the angels of charity, the angels of mercy, the Galgalim, the Surafim, the Ofanim, the Malachi, Restus Vizeh, you're talking about all the highest, highest, like the, the upper echelon of all angels. Miyad Achaz Moshe covered immediately Moshe out of trepidation held on to the holy throne of Hashem. They started reading of the seventh day of creation, which was what? Shabbos. And they started saying, And all of the heavens and all of the creation ceased. And they stopped, they concluded, and they started praising the virtues of teshuva, of repentance. Lalam to teach you, she tshuva magas at Here you know that tshuva reaches the heavenly throne of Hashem. Shenemar shuv Yisrael at Hashem al It brings that same verse in the Midrash. That's what we learned from this verse, that tshuva reaches the heavenly throne. So let me ask you a question. How in the world could the Midrash say that of everything that Hashem created, the Jewish people, the Torah, the Jerusalem, Mashiach, Gehenum, Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, all of these things aren't as great as Teshuva. I mean, come on. Teshuva? I can think of maybe the Torah. Maybe the Torah is on the highest. Maybe the Jewish people are on the highest. Maybe the Garden of Eden. Maybe Mashiach. Maybe Jerusalem. Teshuva? Of all things, repentance? Repentance is the highest thing. So let me share with you a thought. What is the purpose of the Torah? The purpose of the Torah is to be a vehicle, a vessel through which we're able to connect to the Almighty. The greatest ability for a person to connect with God is through the study of Torah. Right now, the Torah that we are studying, we're talking God language. We're speaking God language. God speak. That's what Torah is. There's nothing more sanctified, more holy than the study of Torah. So, what is teshuva? What is teshuva? So think about this for a second. A person does a grave sin. He does a sin. Whatever it is. Pick a sin out of a hat. He does a terrible sin. What is a sin? A sin distances you from God. But what is repentance? Repentance is when you have that epiphany. You have that sudden awakening where you realize, oh my goodness. How did I not see that? How could I have done that not realizing that the Almighty is standing right there? I remember when I was in ninth grade, 
I had a class that was, I don't want to say wild, crazy class. We had a crazy class. Guys would do crazy things in in the classroom and they weren't taking the learning seriously enough. So the principal, one time we had two doors into the classroom. One was in the front of the room, one was in the back of the room. And most of us used the front, the front door. But the principal, one time when the kids were settling into class, the principal sneaked into the back door and stood at the back of the classroom. Didn't say a word. Nobody saw that he was there. And the kids started their shenanigans in class and they're throwing their spitballs and doing all their stuff. And then the principal, quote, by mistake, suddenly hit the back wall of the classroom. And everybody turned around and it was that moment (laughs) where they just realized that everything they just did has been seen by the man in charge. You see, we all have that principal moment where we suddenly realize, oh my goodness, God was there the entire time He saw me do this. And and we have this moment of like, uh uh-oh. That means that he saw everything. He knows what's really happening. I can fool my friends. I can fool my children. I can fool my wife. I can fool my community. I can fool the world. I cannot fool the Almighty. He saw the whole thing from beginning to end. He's standing right there and looking with his hands folded and saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, I got that also. I saw that. I know exactly what you were thinking when you did that too. And we suddenly realize, Oive, what did I just do? And we start feeling that remorse, that embarrassment. Imagine children sometimes do some nonsense. They do some silly things but they hope their parents don't see because they want someone to still believe in them. They want someone to still think that they're worth something. That's what my grandfather says, just a very important principle in education. He says, never catch your children doing something wrong. Let someone still believe in them. I'll give you an example. If your child is playing with something in the room, Your child is playing something. I'll give you even a better example. My grandfather, my my father gave this example. I think a fabulous example. So the dessert comes out and you say, you know, whoever sits by the table nicely for dinner can get dessert. The kids are running around. They're like, you know, they're not sitting for the whole Shabbos meal. They're not going to sit around. They want to go play. Fine, you can go play. But no, dessert is only for those, let's say. You can get the regular dessert, but not the special candies or the chocolate. Okay, let's say. You sit nicely by the table, you get the dessert. So you put out the, the candies. Now, what many people do, because they don't trust their children, is they take the candies, they put it really high up so the kid can reach it. That's basically telling your child, I don't trust you, you're not trustworthy, and I'm going to hide the candies from you. But what you should do is put the candies right there on the table, right in the middle. It's only for the kid's who you say deserve it. Okay. Can we all understand the story? Okay, great. One kid comes and he sneaks a candy, goes under the table and has his candy. So now if the kid sees that you saw, then this whole thing is is null and void. You have to do something. 
But you see with the corner of your eye, you know what's going on. He doesn't realize that you saw it. So what do you do now? You catch him red-handed? Ah, you liar. Or you cheater. You little scoundrel. How can you do that? I told you not to, and now you did. There are people who do that, and they like to ruin their kids. But the best thing to do, the best thing to do is you call all the kids. See the kid sitting under the table right now. He's eating that candy, and it tastes like poison for him. You know why? Because you trusted him. He's sitting under that table. He's not enjoying one drop of that candy. You know what you do? You get all the kids together. And you say, because you guys listened so nicely and nobody took a candy, everybody can have one now. You know what that kid's going to do now? He's not going to take a candy. He can't. Because him violating your trust is the most painful thing in the world for him. You just educated your child with the greatest lesson on earth. Because he can't, you trusted me. Now, I, I've heard, I've said this example in the past to people like, oh, try me. I have no guilt. I have no conscience. My child is, oh, he doesn't care about anything. You just give him a candy. He'll do, you give him that opportunity, he'll cheat you every day of the week. Maybe because you never trusted him properly. Every human being wants to be trusted. It's the greatest value that our parents can give us. Trust. So, Hashem is there and he trusts us. He says, I know you're going to do the right thing. I know you're going to do the right thing. I know you're going to do the right thing. Never catch your child doing something wrong. There's one thing that anyone takes from this class today. Just take that one lesson. Don't take away the trust of your child. Keep believing in them. Don't catch them doing something wrong. My child, all of my children, in all of their bedrooms, I never walk in without knocking on the door first. You know what? Let's say they have something they shouldn't have. Give them a second to hide it. What? You're looking at me like, what are you, crazy? Catch them. Catch the son of a gun. Red-handed. You, right? You, you have a game you shouldn't be having. You're watching a movie you shouldn't be watching. Just like, catch him. Don't catch him. It'll do much better for you not to catch them. Their own conscience is much more powerful. Well, halavai, we're talking now with the next generation. We all say like, thank you. You should have told my parents that, right? But but here's the thing, because let me tell you what happens. Let's say I walk into my son's room and he's reading a book that I don't want him to read or whatever it is. I, I don't have really such rules. But let's say, okay, let's say he's eating in his room. No eating food in the bedroom, right? Let's say it's not a criminal sin. You know what I'm saying? It's not the worst thing in the world. But let's say whatever the rules are, every parent makes their own set of rules. Try to make as least as possible. That's also good. But let's say that's the rule. And they are eating. So what's going to happen now if you catch them? You know what's going to happen? Now you took away all guilt from them. You took away all... Because now they're just going to hide it better. The problem isn't that they did something wrong. The problem is that you caught them. So you're just going to hide it better. So what did you gain? But if you say, <clears throat> you come in and they, they hit it, how do you think that makes them feel? I have to hide it from my parents? He trusts me and I have to hide it from him? I have to hide from my parents? 
They love me so much. They care about me. I'm hiding things from them. That's not that's not a way a relationship works. They don't hide things from me. I'm hiding things from them. What you do is you elevate your child to a point of they know that you trust them. They don't want to violate that trust. So they'll live up to the bar that you set for them. When you set the bar here, they will live up to this. When you set the bar here, they'll live up to that. Look, look, it doesn't work. It doesn't work on a on a criminal. No, no, that's not the way we're talking about in a home where we have <clears throat> one second. But in your own home, it's a it's a uh, it's a controlled environment. Outside in the world, it's not. And you'll have criminals and they'll do things and you got to put them away. Yes, you're going to have to lock them away. We all know that. Right? That's the reality. The reality is that people who do things that are terrible things, they're a danger for society. You got to put them away. There's no question about that. We're talking about in your controlled environment in your own home where you can educate your child with certain values, with certain morals, with certain ethics. That that environment you control and the trust can go a very long way. We all have amazing children. Okay, I, I was just recently I was just I was just recently uh introduced to somebody and they were like, Oh, this child, a certain age, whatever child, a young child, he suffers from anxiety. Now I ask you a question, was he born with anxiety? He wasn't born with anxiety. Doctor, are people born with anxiety? Doctor. No, nobody's born with anxiety. They were given anxiety. How? That's a whole nother question. So you need to go to Dr. Rosenstock, okay, and figure that out, right? But they weren't born with it. Babies smile unless they're traumatized. Healthy human beings smile. When people frown as their, 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 as their natural state, it's because something happened to them. We're born a clean slate. Now, it could be this trauma from the womb already. That can also be. But, a natural child does isn't born with anxiety. Something happened. And it could be it happened from the mother. It could be it happened from the father. It could be it happened from both. It could be it happened because they were molested. It could be that they were uh, traumatized from a teacher. There are plenty of ways that people can be uh, harmed, so to speak, from that clean slate that they're born with. So, and I... I, I, I absolutely 100% disagree with the notion that people are born bad. There's nobody born bad. They choose bad decisions along the way. Yeah. <clears throat> now, I know that there's the Midrash, there's the Torah says that, you know, the, you know that the, talks about uh, Yishmael, that he was a, he was a, he was a no good Nick from, from the womb. Okay, that's, that's true. And you have Esav, he was, he always wanted a, Hunt and Yaakov wanted to learn Torah. You have yes, there there are natural states with which, or or I would say, compositions of different human beings. Yeah, there are people who have a bigger temper than others, right? There are people who are uh, more mild tempered. There are people who are more patient, more calm. There, we have every type of flavor and size of humanity, but that doesn't mean that you're not given the ability to control it. The Talmud says that what does someone who has a desire for blood do? He wants to spill blood. There are people who like blood. There are people like, ugh, I can't, I can't handle blood. People who love blood, what should they do? Become a slaughterer. 
Do a mitzvah with it. You can tame it. You can control it. Become a moel. A mole spills blood too. They exist because of the circumstances they went through in their life. Doctor, help us here. Guide us. The question is, is are there people who are just born with messed up brains and they're psychopaths by birth already? Or is it things that happen to them through their life? From their developmental experiences. You're saying no one's born of schizophrenia. Is schizophrenia. Uh, I, we said, we said there are things that already from, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome was mentioned here. But, but that's part of the developmental trauma that they're, that they're, that they're facing. And then later on, it could be the womb and it could be when they were three years old or two years old or one year old or five years old or seven years old or 18 years old. Again, the, 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 the notion that people are born crazy is, is, is not acceptable. They, they come, they come, well, we're not talking about people who are born with special needs. We're talking about people most, we're talking about the majority of humanity is born a clean slate. Okay, now, it could be messed up because their parents have a terrible relationship and all they hear, by the way, little babies are very, very, very cognizant of what's going on around them. Very. They can hear fighting, they can hear tension, they can hear crisis, they can hear anger, they, they sense all of it, and it has a tremendous impact on them. So people think, oh, it's just a baby, what does a baby know? A baby knows a lot, baby understands a lot, they take it all, it's like wet cement. You make an impression on wet cement, it lasts forever. You may not see it forever, but it's there. It might get covered up with dirt, but it's still there. So we have to understand this as part of our responsibility as parents. It's part of our responsibility as uh, educators to teach the world, to take responsibility for what's going on around us, especially for our children. I think you should just know that when my wife and I were expecting our first child, we were in the United States. Like It was a few months after my wife got pregnant. And uh, we came here. We were here for the summer. I came for my sister's wedding, and we went to some conference. And at the conference, there was a parenting class. And I'm like, "Oh, parenting class! I'm soon going to be a parent. I better go listen." So I go to the class, and the and the rabbi who was speaking is a is, was a real professional, a real professional educator. He was a teacher for years and years. He was he had many degrees. He was a very very well versed in the in the world of education. And he was like throwing fastballs there at, at like the responsibility that parents don't understand the responsibility they have for their children. And I started shaking and I was terrified. And I went over to him after and I'm like, you know, my wife and I, we were like pregnant with our first child. And I'm like, I'm terrified now having a child. I'm, I'm, I'm really, it's like the responsibility that I have bringing this child into this world. And it's my responsibility. He said that fear is the most important thing for a parent to have. You'll be a good father. <laughs> he was like, he was like, he's like, the fact that you're taking it seriously enough to be worried is is a good sign. So that was encouraging, and I was very happy to hear that. But but the the idea again is like this: is that our children don't belong to us. You have to understand this: our children do not belong to us. Our children are a lease. That the Almighty gives us, he says, here, here's this child, make the best person out of this child. And everyone's going to have their own constitution of character, personality, strengths, weaknesses. Look, thank God we're blessed. My wife and I are blessed with eight magnificent children. Not a single one is like the other. 
Not even close. Everyone is uniquely different. Everyone has their own set of gifts and tools and guess what? Challenges. And not everyone is going to be the most studious. Not everyone's going to be the most charismatic. Not everyone's going to be the, the, you know, everyone's got their own thing. Everyone's got their own thing. And you have to take each child. The, uh, King Solomon tells us, You have to educate every child according to their way. Their way is not the parent's way. It's the child's way. Well, my children are all going to be doctors. My children are all going to be lawyers. That's because you feel bad that you didn't raise yourself that way or you weren't raised that way. So now you're going to force it on your children. I have a friend of mine here in Houston, Texas. I'm not going to say what profession he works in, but he's a doctor. And he helps people. And we were schmoozing. And we got into this conversation. He says to me, I hate my job. I hate my existence. I hate it every single day. I said, how can you hate it? You're doing such great things. He says, but I don't want to be a doctor. He says, I prefer being a garbage man than being a doctor. He says, I hate my job. I hate it. So I said, so why are you a doctor? He says, because my parents forced me to be a doctor. I don't want to be a doctor. That's a tragic thing that he's living his life and he doesn't feel fulfilled by what he's doing. He feels like it's a burden for him. He feels like it's a, it's a nuisance for him. That's a terrible thing. To him, this is not what's satisfying for him. That's tragic. So I, I think we need to understand that our children are a lease. God gives them to us to see the best product that we can make of them and to bring the full fruition of their potential, not of what we want. You know, my grandfather was a very, very big rabbi and he was a, known as a world-class educator. I mean, questions of education came to him from the entire world, entire globe, everywhere where there was Jewish education going on, they sent them questions. And my grandfather would deal with a lot of situations. Now, my father is a very, very special man, but he ain't no rabbi. Right? He was an ordained rabbi, but he was not a rabbi like my grandfather was a rabbi. My father is a regular businessman, not not regular, pretty spectacular and extraordinary, but out of the ordinary. But what most people looking from the outside will look like, here's the rabbi, and this is the son he educated. Perhaps he wasn't so successful in educating his own child, you know, this world-class educator. And I'll tell you, someone once had the chutzpah and came to my father and said to my father, was your father successful in your education, in your upbringing? He says, you know, that's a great question. I'll ask him. So my father asked my grandfather, were you successful in my education? He told him this guy came over to him and asked him that. Quite a chutzpah. But you know what? He asked him that. Nonetheless, my father's a man of truth. And my father said, I'll ask. So he asked my grandfather. My grandfather thought about it. And he said, yes, I was very successful in your education. Now, I want to explain to you why my grandfather was able to say that. Because you can only play with the cards that you are dealt. You can't play with the cards that the guy sitting next to you is dealt. Every single child is a different set of cards. And you have to get the best deal with the cards that you have. Guess what? 
The cards that were dealt to my grandfather, he had to make the best set with those cards. That's it. Each one of us are given the children that are exactly perfectly tailored for us to handle. The exact child that God gave you is the child that God said, this is the perfect child for you to raise, you too, to be the parents for this child. I'm like, oh, but all the circumstances, my parents, okay, so not every parent is the greatest parent in the world. But God also gave you as the child the tools to deal with it and to make the best out of your life. And we can sit here all day quetching about how, oh, my father wasn't, he was abusive, and my mother never said nice things to me, and my sister and my brother and everyone's fighting and this and that. We can, we can say all the stories. That's just stories. That isn't an answer to us not becoming the best person we can become. We are all given opportunities in our lives. We're not here forever. And the come to, you know what, moment, right? To put up or shut up, right? That kind of, that moment is every single Rosh Hashanah. Where we say in front of the Almighty, you know what? I'm not blaming the rest of the world. I'm not going to blame my parents and I'm not going to blame my circumstances and my boss and my this and my that and everybody pointing fingers at everybody else. I'm looking right here in the mirror. It's me. I need to take responsibility for me. And that's what teshuva is. Teshuva is when I realize, uh uh-oh, I'm living my life thinking I can point fingers at everybody else, not realizing I need to point in the mirror at myself. And I'm the only person that takes accountability and responsibility for who I am. No one is forcing me to sleep in bed late in the morning, to sleep in. And no one's forcing me to not be motivated to get that job and to get that promotion. I'm not motivated. It's me. You can blame it on the this and the vice president and that guy doesn't like me and they don't like me. You can blame it on everybody else. Look at the mirror and say, hey, God gave me talents. God gave me abilities. God gave me skills. God gave me unbelievable gifts. What am I doing with them? I'm quetching about other people. Get it together and make something and do something. Teshuva means I return to that original clean slate. Wipe all of that history clean. All of the excuses away. Everything is out. Now I'm back to that little baby who starts a clean slate. What? But I've got some history. I've done some things. That's the miracle of Teshuvah. Teshuvah, Hashem says, I clear the entire slate for you. Everything. All of the, you have books and books and books of all of the sins you've done. Real Teshuvah wipes it away. It's all gone. Now you got a clean slate. Put forward your plan. Put forward your vision. What are you planning on doing? Let's go. Go get him. That's what Shuva is. Teshuva means to return. Return to what? 
When we are born, we don't have a barrier between us and the Almighty. Why does a baby cry? I love saying this. Why does a baby cry when we, when the baby is born? Why does it want to come out of the womb? Why does the baby, why is it crying? Changing so the it's, environment. It, oh, it's such a great place. Look, we have balloons and we have Barbie dolls and we have uh, cars. We have so many opportunities for this child to be busy and go to amusement park and to go to Disney World and to go here and to go there, SeaWorld. So many great places and you'll learn great things and you'll read fantastic books. What's the problem? It's such a great world. You can, you can buy Whole Foods and overpay for, for cereal. It's great. So many opportunities. Why is the baby crying? Because in, in the womb, the baby is connected with the Almighty without any barriers. It says that a baby in the womb can see from one side of the world to the other. How can you see from one side of the world to the other? There's no barriers. There's no limitations. There's nothing. It's all spiritual. It's all connection. Comes into this world and now it's locked. That soul that could see from one side of the world to the other is now put into a prison. It's locked in this rib cage and it can't do anything. It's like, why are you limiting me? Why are you limiting me? I can't. I, I used to be able to see anything. And suddenly I can't see from one side of the world to the other. Suddenly I'm limited. And what does the mother say? It's okay, sweet little baby. You can accomplish great things. Don't see them as limitations. They're opportunities. Because you're going to take that lofty soul and bring your body with it. Elevate the body. If we let our bodies take control, then it'll pull down the soul. If we let our soul take control, it'll elevate the body. And what that means in a practical sense. How many times are we tempted to do something which is physically pleasuring, like eating food that we shouldn't eat? A diet is a perfect example. It doesn't have to be a sin. It doesn't have to be a sin. How many times do we know that eating this food is not good for you? Every day, we have things like, I really shouldn't eat that chocolate. But I want to eat that chocolate. That's the spiritual versus physical battle. I know that I should be pursuing better health, taking care of myself. But physically, I'm, the, I, I'm attracted to this chocolate. I want to eat it. Who wins? Do you elevate it, elevate that physical and say, I'm going to withstand it. And when I behave for a week, I'll be able to take a bite of that chocolate. Or do you just say, yeah, I'll start my diet tomorrow. I'll start next week. It's clean slate next week, new month, you know, start new, fresh. New membership starts then. I get my raise then. It's like we always have plans about how the future is going to be the perfect beginning. Today is the tomorrow you spoke about yesterday. This is the reality of life. We're always in a challenge of who's going to win that battle. It's a tug of war. Who is going to win that war? Are we going to elevate our body or are we going to pull down our soul? That's our whole life. That's why it says that when there's Tchiasamesim, which is the resurrection of the dead, it's the reunification of the body and the soul reunited once again. That's why it's important. If you know anybody who's planning to cremate themselves, get them to change their plans. Because what happens? Soul comes up to heaven. The body stays here, is buried. We bury the body with the utmost dignity. The soul goes back to heaven. It's judged. 
like, wow, you did a lot of great things. Learned a lot of Torah. You gave a lot of charity. Did acts of kindness. Selfless. Unbelievable. I'm going to give you a reward. Comes the body and says, whoa, 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 hold it. Why are you giving the soul reward? I was the body who slept out of bed to do those acts of kindness. I was the body that drove all the way to the tour center to learn that Torah. I was the body that was careful about what I was eating so that the spiritual soul can be elevated higher and higher. Why is the soul getting the reward, not me? God says you're right. And that's why the resurrection is the reuniting of the body and the soul so they both get the reward. So what's the question everyone asks? Rabbi, am I going to come back as a 90-year-old? Or do I come back as a 30-year-old, 17-year-old? What what age body am I coming back to? The answer is, it's not going to make a difference. Because it's not going to be a world that we're going to care about the physical. It's not going to be a world where the physical flaws, blemishes, are going to make any difference. It's going to be the casing for this holy, lofty body. So my dear friends, my dear friends, have a magnificent, amazing, terrific Shabbos. And it's only one more week till Rosh Hashanah. My dear friends, next Friday night is Rosh Hashanah. And that means that this is the last Friday night of the year. Tomorrow is the last Saturday of the year. The last Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of the year. Our sages tell us, Hakol holech acharachisum. Everything goes by how you close out everything in life. So how do, you, how do you finish the deal? How do you close the deal? How do we end the year? If we end the year strong, the whole year is judged as a strong year. If we end the year as a holy year, the whole year is like a holy year. If we end the year connected, it's like the whole year was connected. My dear friends, let's make it an amazing, amazing end of year. It should be the best end of year because that will be telling on our whole past year that it was a fabulous year. The last Shabbos of the year. Guys, let's make it the most incredible Shabbos ever. Have a magnificent Shabbos and I look forward next week, God willing, continuing to learn and prepare for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur.